The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So can we really trust modern Bible translations? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. I believe you are going to be helped, informed, encouraged, even inspired today as we dig into this question about, can we really trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible as we have it today? Can we trust modern translations or have things been lost in translation? And if you really read the original languages, then you'd see how things have been lost in translation. Or perhaps if we really had the original, original manuscripts and not copies of copies, we could know what the Bible really said, but we can't really know otherwise. I believe we're going to help you build your faith, strengthen you. And then we're going to bring on a guest at the bottom half of the hour talking about people deconstructing, questioning their faith, leaving their faith, solid answers for those things. So here's the phone number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. That is the number to call. And if you want to ask me anything about this, Bible translations, or the original languages, or the original manuscripts, or questions about people leaving the faith, by all means, give us a call. If, if you're struggling yourself, it's fine to ask. It's perfectly fine to ask. In fact, the key to you coming out of struggles may be asking those questions. And maybe you're in a church environment where you're not allowed to ask them. Go, oh, we don't question. You are questioning God. Are you questioning the Bible? What? If the Bible's true, I don't want to question it, but I don't know. And I'm got que- Well, come with your questions because there are solid answers for all your questions. Now, I want to give you a little background that I think will be really helpful, and then we're going to dig in deep, all right? So put your seatbelts on because we're going to give you a lot of useful, helpful information today. And again, these are fields I can address with some degree of authority because of my academic background and studies and having interacted with so many who believe differently over the decades. Okay, this is what has happened in recent years. This is a major reason as to why people today are asking more questions about the Bible. And it's, this is one of a number of factors, but it's a major factor. I'll use one example, Professor Bart Ehrman. He is a highly respected New Testament scholar, a specialist in ancient New Testament texts, manuscripts, and things like that. So a respected scholar in his field. His scholarly work is taken seriously and evaluated by other scholars as such. A number of years back, he writes a book, and it's about the Gospels, and it's questioning whether Jesus ever said this or whether this is reliable or that. Well, to scholars, this was nothing new. In other words, the questions he was raising had been raised by scholars for decades or for centuries. And people like me, people who have a background in biblical scholarship, who studied with people who don't believe what we believe, in other words, all my professors didn't believe what I believe, I never had a professor who agreed with me theologically, biblically, in all my time in college and grad school. Uh, Some were outright hostile to my faith. So I had every kind of question thrown my way all the way through my PhD. And other other conservative scholars that we we believe the Bible is reliable, yeah, we're familiar with the arguments and the questions, and they're solid answers, right? No big deal. Good question, Professor Ehrman. Great question. Here's what we feel is a great answer. 
and we're good, right? Your average Christian wasn't asking those questions. Your average Christian didn't know many of those questions existed. Why? Well, they have a Bible, and it's, they assume it's authoritative. They assume it's trustworthy. It's the Holy Bible, right? After all, and their church uses it, and their pastor quotes from it. So it must be good and fine. And you read it, like, wow, God's really speaking to me and changing my life, and this is so beautiful and rich. And yeah, a few verses seem to contradict, and I have a question here and there. But, but otherwise, like, yeah, it's the Bible. Well, books like Professor Ehrman's books became suddenly very popular. And, and it, within the same number of years, you have the, the, the new atheist Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens and, and Sam Harris and others, and their books become mega popular. And now they're raising philosophical objections to the existence of God and philosophical objections to the Bible, which again, all of us in this field, yeah, we've been aware of these for years and dealt with these for years. Now you may like the answers, you may not, but we're confident there are solid answers for all these questions. And many of us really dug. Many of us went through crisis. Many of us really had to say, is my faith real or not? Is the Bible true or not? So we wrestled through these things. But your average person is now, boom, getting hit for the first time. It's like, I didn't know about this. I didn't know about this. And is it reliable? And, and so they're all good questions. They're all legitimate questions. You don't have to keep the questions in the closet. And you don't have to fear the questions because there are solid answers. But suddenly, a lot of stuff is out there. And then maybe you've got a gay cousin, the nicest guy in the world. And, 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 and he claims to be a gay Christian. He says, hey, you know, the Bible's been misinterpreted all these years. He's like, well, maybe I wonder. And after all, I can't read Hebrew. I can't read Greek. So what do I really know? So this is how a lot of this stuff has come to the surface now. And then it gets transmitted through memes, through little sayings. And now 12-year-old kids are saying, yeah, the Bible's like a Bronze Age God of, you know, Bronze Age book, and we can't believe it. And God just wanted to kill people. And so this stuff trickles down to kids who haven't even processed a lot of it. So it's created a real crisis in faith for many. That's the bad news. The good news is all the standard answers remain standard. So I, I wanna first talk to you about the reliability of the Hebrew Bible, okay? The reliability of the Hebrew Bible. You might say, okay, what is the earliest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible we have? Let's say the final books were finally written, edited, let's just say in the fourth century before Jesus, all right? So we just use a rough number there. I'm, I'm going to round things out. Just say 400 years before the time of Jesus is the culmination of the final writing, editing of the Old Testament, what we call the Hebrew Bible, or we call the Old Testament, scholars call the Hebrew Bible, traditional Jews call the Tanakh. Let's just, I'm going to round off a figure. Let's not debate that. I'm just rounding it off. 400 years before the time of Jesus. All right. What is the oldest complete copy of that Bible that we have? Well, it is the Leningrad Codex. It is called B19A. That's how it was registered in the library. Leningrad Codex B19A, which is about a thousand years after the time of Jesus. You say, what? What are you? Are you kidding me? 1400 year gap? And you expect me to believe that that's accurate or reliable? Ah, but there's more to the story. Now, there's also the Aleppo Codex, which is even more authoritative and was stored in the synagogue in Aleppo, but was partially damaged during the War of Liberation for Israel in 1948. So that's not fully preserved. But still, that you're still talking about the same time period. Ah, but it's, it, it is not the way it sounds. 
what, where are all the other manuscripts through all the centuries? Where are the other complete copies of the Bible through all the centuries? Because we know they existed because they're quoted in other Jewish literature over and over and over and over and over. And church leaders are quoting them over and over and over. And the New Testament writers are quoting them over and over and over. Ah, so we've got a lot of evidence for the Hebrew Bible being quoted and the verses are being quoted in similar fashion over and over and over and over and over. Uh, and, and we have translations into other languages, into Greek, into Aramaic, into, into Syriac, into Latin, into Ethiopic, into other languages. So we have that. We, we know it, it existed. But what happened to all the copies? Well, they were considered too sacred by, by the Jewish community. So when they would get really old and deteriorate, they, they would be buried. So they're lost, right? They just deteriorate then. Or be stored in the, in the back of a synagogue, and, and most of those no longer extant, and, and then those would deteriorate. You say, yeah, but, but how could you know they're being copied accurately? Ah, that's the big question. That's the big question. So if you have a Hebrew Bible today, right? At, at, let's say you come to the end of the, of the Torah, the end of the five books of Moses. Here's the note from the scribe. This is what's written. The sum total of verses in the first five books is this. The sum total of words is this. The sum total of letters is this. The middle verse is this. The middle word is this. The middle letter is this. So, I mean, that's how meticulous it's counted. And if it's off by a letter, it's disqualified. You can't use it. So that's how scribes were transmitting it century after century after century. Now let's back up. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, that was a, whoa, eye-opener because some of the manuscripts there dated to 100 and even almost 200 years before the time of Jesus, all right? And in some cases, letter for letter, they are the exact same text, exact same letter for letter, in some cases, to the manuscript from a thousand years later, meaning they were meticulously copied, meticulously copied, meticulously copied. The other, the other differences that you have that are not letter for letter, a lot of it is the spelling changes or scribe writing with a more free hand. But then you say, well, how do you know the exact right text? Well, we not only have all these Hebrew manuscripts, thousands from the, the Middle Ages and then some of the early texts that's preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we have the translation into Greek called the Septuagint. This was done a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. I'm using rough figures here. We have the Aramaic Targums, now, they, they are often paraphrastic. They often paraphrase the text. But you have those. And, and some of those date to before the time of Jesus. Like you have the Targum to the book of Job, part of that, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then we have translations to other languages. As I mentioned, Latin or Syriac, which is part of the Aramaic family, and, and others. So you can compare them all. And when you look at all of them, you realize, okay, this has been preserved accurately. Yeah, we have some differences and we have some questions but nothing that is going to be a life and death issue. Like, you know, you have Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1, and it's written the way it's written. You don't have a dispute in the ancient manuscripts or versions. What does it actually say there? All right? You know, you look at Isaiah 7, 14. There's a debate about the meaning of the passage, but the actual words, we don't really have a debate on it. That all the main themes of Isaiah 53, I'm talking about like messi major messianic prophecies, or Psalm 110. You don't really have a debate, a key debate about wording, phraseology that 
we know what the Hebrew says. Yes, you're going to have variants here and there, spelling variants, things like that. But you don't have variants of substance. So you've got this massive amount of evidence. And you say, wow, wow. so when I'm reading from the Hebrew Bible and now translate it with great pains into English, you can compare 50 or 100 different English translations and say, wow, they're, they're saying the same thing. The differences are minute. You can really be confident. Nothing has been preserved in the ancient world like the Bible. It has been preserved with amazing accuracy and detail. And, and you can be confident when you pick up a Bible and read, hey, I'm, I'm reading the Word of God. We'll be right back. I'm going to share more about the New Testament and take some calls. Stay right here. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. We're talking about the reliability of the Bible that we have. I want to make a distinction between texts and versions. The text is the original text, the original Hebrew, the original Greek, and then we have copies copies of the original manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts. We have copies and copies of those. All right. So that's the original text. A version is a translation. The King James Version, the New International Version. The, the Septuagint, which is the Greek, that's a the, the ancient Greek translation. That's a version. So version is the same as translation. All right. So we have the original text, Hebrew, some Aramaic and Greek. And then we have all the versions the translations of those texts into other languages. Got it? All right, I, I want to get to some New Testament evidence, but first, let's go over to Ethiopia. Chris, what are you doing in Ethiopia? Hey there. Um, yeah, so I live here. Um, my parents are missionaries, and I'm basically, um, I'm 18. And uh, I just had a couple questions uh, recently, and I'm a Christian, and but recently I've been reading the Old Testament with um, more uh, in more detail than I have in the past, which I think is a great thing. But a lot of the passages that I've looked at, um, oftentimes uh, that I had considered as messianic, oftentimes when I look at them again, I feel like um, I'm not entirely sure that I'm not entirely sure that um, this is referring to Jesus. And sometimes like a lot of the prophecies, seem to refer to a messianic kingdom that we would call the second coming. Mm -hmm. For example, in Jeremiah 31, we have um, talking about a new covenant, and I'm like, great, that sounds exactly like Jesus. But then in the next chapter, um, it talks about this covenant, maybe the same one, maybe a different one, where we're going to see Israel and Judah dwelling securely and knowing God. Yep. And I'm like, hmm. Or, or similarly, we have... Um, uh, in Psalm 22, well, that seems to de uh, describe Jesus, but um, and this refers specifically to translation, is like we have, um, they have pierced his hands and feet, but then a lot of the text seems to say, a lot of the ancient versions seem to say, they are like a lion at my hands and feet, which is different than saying they have pierced his hands and feet. Oh yeah, so Chris, so, these are wonderful questions, and we've answered every one of them in great depth. 
So I want to encourage you to visit realmessiah.com, realmessiah.com. Look for some of your specific objections there, like Psalm 22, for example. Anything you can own, find, uh, shoot us a note uh, through our website, through the main Esther Brown website, or through Real Messiah. And uh, I've got a colleague, brilliant colleague, who will respond individually to you. But let's just mention Psalm 22, for example. The Hebrew text, as we have it, uh, says, like a lion, my hands and feet. There's no verb there. Just says, like a lion, my hands and feet. So some of the rabbinic commentaries say, like a lion tearing at my hands and feet. But the oldest Hebrew manuscript we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls, a little, time, a little bit after the time of Jesus, says they pierced my hands and feet. The Septuagint, mm-hmm. which is the oldest translation, says they pierced. And then there are a number of Masoretic manuscripts from the Middle Ages that, that say they pierced. So one reading is like a lion at my hands and feet, meaning tearing, ripping, which works just as vividly. Uh, and and but the other tran- the other the other versions and manuscripts say uh, they pierce. That's that's why our English translations will largely say they pierce. But either way, it's the same disfiguring. It's the same attack. Mm-hmm. And and the the first question though is a bit more complex. What we have to understand is when the Jewish people return from exile. When you read the prophecies that are turned like Ezekiel thirty six, it says. It's going to be this spectacular thing, and God's going to change their hearts and all this. Well, they did come back. They did rebuild the temple. It was miraculous, but a lot of what was supposed to happen didn't happen. In other words, the, mm-hmm. the, the down payment happened, but the, mir- the big miracle, the way it's supposed to be in the whole world, seeing the glory of God, like Isaiah 40, and lives, hearts being dramatically changed, that didn't happen. And, well, what's going to happen? Well, now we see the rest of it happening. Jewish people coming back to the land, the restoration of the state. And we know that in the future, there will be a spiritual transformation. So we first got the down payment, the deposit, right? The rest will follow. The new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah was established with the death and resurrection of the Messiah. We are enjoying the first fruits of it now, but in the end, it will sweep to all of Israel. The Messiah came as, as expected on schedule, right? But the fullness of what was expected didn't happen yet. So it's like the first and second comings were merged together. And that's how the prophets saw them. That's why first Peter one says that the prophets ask, okay, who's this about? We thought this was for us. Now we realize it's for another generation. So the down payment was made. The Messiah had to come before the second temple was destroyed as we can show prophetically. So he came, did what he had to do. That's the deposit down payment. He was then rejected by his people to become a light to the nations and then in the end, his own people will welcome him back. And that's when he'll return and establish his kingdom. And the rest of it will happen. We're sure the rest mm-hmm. will happen because we already got the down payment and deposit. So is, is that helpful? Yeah, I think that is. And it does seem a little bit difficult for me to accept sometimes that um, the prophecies are mixing both, um, mixing both the first and second coming. And... Um, but only some of them do, actually. For example, Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, it starts with the great exaltation of the Messiah, but only after he suffers terribly. And then 53 focuses on the suffering. Psalm 22 focuses on the suffering and resurrection and how that testimony will be proclaimed to the whole world. It, it doesn't talk about a second coming there. So most are, are either or. Isaiah 2 is just future. Um, Isaiah 11 is just future. Isaiah 9 begins with the birth and then goes future. 
So most do not merge things. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 doesn't merge things there. That's it's just about what has to happen in the past. Uh, so Zechariah 12, ultimately future only. So in, in that sense, in that sense, there's really not a lot of confusion there. But start with this template, Chris, because you're, you're obviously asking sharp questions. Start with this template, namely, Look at what happened through return from exile, because we know those were true prophecies by true prophets. The beginning happened, the rest did not. The rest will happen in the future. And then go to realmessiah.com, watch the debates there, look at the videos, and if, uh, if you've got further questions, please call again, please do, or write to us. We'd love to answer more of your questions. All right, and blessings to your family there in, in Ethiopia. Very much appreciate the call. And yes, we are live on our Facebook channel, as one of our callers asked. Every day, this broadcast is live on Facebook and YouTube. You can actually watch as I smile and wave at you. Okay, really quickly, over to the New Testament. I want to read something to you from F.F. Bruce and his famous book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? He begins by saying that middle of the 1800s, scholars confidently asserted that some of the most important books in the New Testament, the Gospels, Acts, did not exist before the 30s of the second century. So, wow, that's like 100 years after Jesus. He goes, no, they're not saying it anymore. That, that's not the consensus now. And, and I want to scroll down, uh, and Chris will go to the next page. Look at, what, look at what Bruce says. There are in existence about 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in whole or in part. The best and most important of these go back to somewhere around A.D. 350, the two most important being Codex Vaticanus, etc., etc., and he goes through it with further details there. Now he says, perhaps we can appreciate how wealthy the New Testament is in manuscript attestation if we compare the textual material for other ancient historical books or works. So let's go think back to... New Testament times and books that were written around that time. Let's see how much attestation we have. Remember, we have 5,000 New Testament manuscripts, right? <clears throat> For Caesar's Gallic War, composed between 58 and 50 BC, there are several extant manuscripts, but only nine or 10 are good. And the oldest is some uh, X number of hundred, there's a typo here, not goo, years later than Caesar's day. So it's hundreds of years later. Of the 142 books of the Roman history of Livy, 59 B.C. to A.D. 17, only 35 survive. These are known to us from not more than 20 manuscripts of any consequence, only one of which, and that containing fragments of books 3 and 4, is as old as the 4th century. So hundreds and hundreds of years later, you just got a manuscript or two. Of the 14 books of the histories of Tacitus, who wrote around 100 A.D., only four and a half survive. Of the 16 books of his annals, 10 survive in full and two in part, the text of these extant portions uh, has, of, uh, has two great historical works, depends entirely on two manuscripts, one of the 9th century, one of the 11th century. So you're talking about 1,000 years, 800 and 1,000 years later, you've got a few manuscripts in support. And he said, yet no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of any of these authors, he cites a bunch more, is in, in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works, which are of any use to us, are 1,300 years later, then the originals, he says, but how different this is, the situation with the New Testament. So he, he's saying not only do we have 5,000 manuscripts, but we have many from early on. He, he says the, the Chester Beatty Biblical Papyri 
the existence of which was made public in 1931, consists of portions of 11 papyrus codices, three of which contain most of the New Testament writings. One of these containing the four Gospels with Acts belongs to the first half of the third century. Another containing Paul's letters to churches and epistles to the Hebrews was, was copied at the beginning of the third century. The third containing Revelation belongs to the second half of the same century. And you have some even earlier than this now. So you have nothing in the ancient world that compares. We quote all these other ancient works without question, without hesitation. Why? Because we have a few manuscripts hundreds of years later or a thousand years later preserving them, but they're well known. The New Testament is like thousands and thousands and thousands of times more accurately preserved. That's in the providence of God, and that's because people treasure it as the Word of God. Yes, you can be confident when you read your Bible, you're reading accurate, excellent translations of Hebrew and Greek that have been preserved with amazing care. We'll be right back with our special guest, Natasha Crane. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We have devoted a lot of time on this broadcast to asking difficult questions and answering difficult questions. We have, for 13 years live online, encouraged you, radio and however else you've taken the broadcast, to, to ask tough questions, to challenge us. But there is a real crisis right now with, with many Christians leaving their faith, deeply questioning their faith, wondering if they can really believe God, believe the Bible, put their trust in what they've heard for years. People are deconstructing and saying, hey, this is good. I'm, I'm questioning a lot of stuff and trying to take the religious wrappings off and try to get to the original. In the process, they're, they're being led astray. So we, we've devoted a lot of time to this subject uh, ask the question in the first half of the broadcast, can we, can we trust modern Bible translations? Now, I, I want to bring on a guest, Natasha Crane. We've never, to my knowledge, met or talked before, but she is an author, podcaster, influencer, and, and she is passionate about providing solid answers for deep questions that people have. And her new book, Faithfully Different, regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. So I thought, well, this is this be a great conversation to have today. So, Natasha, thanks so much for joining us on The Line of Fire. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk with you. So your own upbringing, were you raised in a Christian environment? Did you go through a period of questioning? Did you come to the faith from the outside? What's your own story? Yeah, I was raised in a Christian home, and honestly, I never really thought about my faith too deeply. I didn't question things when I was growing up. Um, it's just kind of, it was just what there was in my life, that Jesus saved me from my sins, and I'd go to heaven someday. And so by the time that I left home, I had spent hundreds of hours in church, and I had grown up in a Christian family, but I really didn't have any understanding of the Bible. And it really wasn't until I had kids that I realized I needed to dig in more deeply. And I actually got into the whole area of apologetics because I started a blog about a decade ago on Christian parenting. And I just started writing when my kids were very little. I had three kids, three and under, and I just started writing blog posts to encourage other Christian parents of things that they could do with their young kids. And as I did that, I started getting skeptics attacking me on my blog and attacking the truth of Christianity 
making all kinds of claims like the Bible's filled with errors and contradictions, there's no evidence that God exists, Jesus didn't exist as a person in history, all these kinds of things. And as a lifelong Christian, I realized I have no idea how to answer these questions. And so I discovered apologetics through that and then turned my blog into a place where I was helping to equip other Christian parents. So eventually that led to me writing three apologetics books for parents, and this most recent one, basically different, is my first for a general Christian audience, not just parents. This one I'm talking about secularism versus a biblical worldview. Got so it took it. me a long point to get to this from my childhood, for sure. Yeah, but, but what, a, what a great journey. But that is the world today. In other words, when, when you come to faith now, you're bombarded with a whole lot that maybe a last generation wasn't, you know, through internet and through other means, and then just fundamental things being questioned. So it's one thing when your kid asks, Mommy, how come Jesus didn't answer my prayer? Or why did my friend die? Those are serious questions. Those are the ones that are the hardest for me, questions from, from children. But it's, it's a whole other thing now when everything is being questioned and up for grabs. Have, have you seen a shift yourself in the culture in terms of more skepticism, more questions? Have, have you witnessed that yourself in these recent years? Absolutely. And it, like I said, when I first started hearing these questions, they were new to me, even though I had grown up in a Christian home in the church. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing all these kinds of these questions from skeptics that I just was totally unfamiliar with. And over time, I started hearing from more and more parents, especially, who were saying that they were getting these kinds of questions, or that they had a spouse who was deconverting, or that their friends at church seemed to be questioning, and people were looking for more and more answers. And I think that as the world has become more politicized and, and polarized, you see these subjects coming up more and more, and a lot of people just aren't sure how to approach that. And unfortunately, a lot of times when people are not sure how to approach it, it's just easier to step away and say, well, I don't believe anymore. But yeah. I definitely see more of that. All right, so you previously written, just looking at the list here, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. So parents, just want to alert you to these books if you're not aware. Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, Talking With Your Kids About God, Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. So these were all written between 2016 and 2020. In your own journey, Natasha, did you go through any things where you got hit with a question or an objection and it struck like, oh, I, I don't know I have an answer. Or, or maybe it took you a while to find an answer that's satisfied. Absolutely. You know, it, when I started getting the questions, I was especially interested in digging into the questions around science and, and origins, age of the earth and evolution. That was something that I had never studied. And so I decided, you know, my kids are going to have to understand this, and they're growing up in a completely different world than I am. And so I set out to learn about evolution. I never learned about this in, in my school in terms of any depth. And so I went online. I took a, a course through a Christian organization, actually, uh, that was promoting theistic evolution. I took this course online, and within three hours, and I tell this story, actually, of my first book, within three hours that afternoon, I remember sitting on my bed, covering my head with a blanket and saying everything I've ever believed is false. Mm. If evolution is true, everything that I've ever believed is false. I had no understanding. No one had ever talked with me or I had no training on how to even look at the science or the scripture or process these ideas. And so I probably related to it a lot like college students who go off to college and hear certain things and aren't sure what to do with it. For the first time. And so it took me quite a bit of time and reading to really work through that and learn about all the different views that Christians have, and both scientifically, scripturally, all those questions. 
And so I absolutely relate to feeling like the world is just being pulled out from under you when everything that you've ever believed seems to be false in that moment. Yeah, and and I'm personally very glad to hear that because it does give us a greater sense of empathy. It it does allow us to put ourselves in the, in the, the shoes of someone who's struggling because I've talked to other people of faith and they've just never struggled. And the questions that hit others don't hit them. So I mean, I, that's wonderful. That's amazing. You know, for me, <laughs> when I, when I came to faith a little over 50 years ago as, as a heroin shooting LSD using hippie rock drummer, Jewish kid and, and brand new believer. my dad says, Michael, I'm glad you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this has me meet with the local rabbi. This is right out of the gate. And then after that, go to college and, and right through my PhD, I studied with all secular professors. So I, when I got hit and I went through the questions and the wondering, but then the answers you get, they have substance. They, it's not just a cheap little answer to push somebody away. So I, I'm glad that you went through that because it does give you that heart of empathy and understanding and friends, especially parents. If you've got a question, your kids are raised and you're trying to figure out how to approach it. I mentioned uh, Natasha's books that will be great resources, but Feel free to give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. As, as you are encountering objections, are you? Are, I don't know if you know who you're dealing with on your blog, ages and things, but are you seeing young people, Generation Z, they're having more issues than baby boomers, or are you able to, to categorize it at all? Well, it, it really depends on what the subject matter is. I think in terms of all the, the big, hot cultural issues, you see that especially with Gen Z and millennials, that those are breaking points. They're not asking the question, what is true? They're asking what works, what's helpful, and what keeps me from hurting someone else, uh, again, from their own definition. So I think that that's, that makes it really difficult because those are different questions than we would hope to be asking as Christians. We want to know what is true about the nature of reality. And so I, I would say that the people that I hear from who are older, so who are Gen X and older, they are more, they seem to be more concerned with that question, is it true? And coming with questions that would suggest Christianity is not true. So looking at the relationship with science for example, and asking those kinds of questions, or how do you reconcile certain things in the Bible? But I do feel like the questions that I hear right, from we younger just, people... Um, somehow lost Natasha there. Not sure what happened to our feed. So, um, guys, if you can just communicate with me, that would be awesome. We'll figure out what happened to our, our feed here as we continue to talk with you. Um, it, it is interesting, this question about is it, is it true or does it work? That there is a difference there. That one person saying, okay, hey, look, my cousin's gay. He's in a nice relationship with another guy and I'm being mean if I don't go to his wedding. Is a different question, or what are we going to do with the problem of racism in the church? That's a different question than is the Bible true? Uh, so... Uh, <clears throat> When we come back to this, and, and we'll get Natasha back on the line, not sure where our connection problem for many years and, and felt burdened to help others Hello? who are struggling. So we want to talk about this documentary, and we, we want to separate fact from fiction. So uh, without further ado, Janet, great to have you back on the line of fire. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dr. Brown. It's been a while. Yeah, <laughs> been a while. Been but on your show. 
Yeah, yeah, but we did get to minister together. Was it in June, I think, right? It was in, in June, uh, thank in you. In Texas. Great. So, yeah. so Janet, first tell us about this documentary, uh, why it's important to, to address this, and what were some of the funda- fundamental misconceptions in the documentary? Mm-hmm. You know, first, thank you for, for having me on once again. It, 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 just think about the, the title, Pray Away. I remember back in... 2013, you better believe it, it was difficult. It, it, it produces a, a crisis. And, you know, it, it, when you doubt the fundamentals, oh, some of you are like, yeah, you're talking to me. It's very painful. It's like your whole life is collapsing. It's a massive kick in the gut, and, and you can't get your, your breath back. So, Natasha, the, the process for you in terms of going from everything I believe is false. Was it instantly that you started to get answers or was there a gradual rebuilding? From the point of evolution that afternoon? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it did take a lot of time for me because I, I, I'm i a very analytical person and so I couldn't just read, you know, one article or <laughs> the one podcast to say, oh, okay, I can see how all of this fits together. And so I read I'm sure thousands of pages, honestly, between a lot of different books. And it was that process of really just teasing out all of these things and then coming to some answers, feeling like I had a grasp of what, where the debates were lying, and then going on to some other questions. And I really think that it's critical for... Can you hear me still? Yeah, tell you what. Well, I was going to let you talk through the music, but you're a sensitive guest. You picked it up there. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. I want to pursue this more deeply and then ask what faithfully different is the message that we need to hear today. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Greg Kokel and Nancy Piercy and Sean McDowell, Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek, others, uh, friends and colleagues of mine speaking highly of the book. So I, I want to get into this for a moment. Uh, Natasha, how does Faithfully Different now tie in with this larger quest of, of dealing with apologetics and providing solid answers for people who are asking difficult questions? Well, I started after writing the three apologetics books for parents, I started to realize that while apologetics is extremely important for kids to understand, I'm seeing that a lot of people, and adults included, and this is a book for adults, aren't able to even clearly distinguish between worldviews in the first place. So in other words, they're not even able to identify, okay, these are ideas and concepts that go with a biblical worldview versus these ideas over here go with a secular one. And you can't do apologetics until you have that kind of clarity. Apologetics takes you to the next step of saying, okay, once I have accurately characterized these different worldviews and figured out what's logically consistent within them, how do I know which one's true? How do I know which one is an accurate picture of reality? So all the apologetics work that I've done and that many people are doing, that's about determining what's true. But worldview is more about understanding clearly what belongs in each of these different philosophical buckets, if you will. So that's really what Faithfully Different is about, 
is to help people understand very clearly at a first step what is a biblical worldview, what's consistent with it, and what is secularism as a worldview, and why do some ideas belong there that do not belong in our biblical worldview, because a lot of Christians are getting influenced by ideas that just don't fit with our picture of reality. What, what about progressive Christianity, which is obviously a departure from the biblical faith and historic faith? What, what's the power of that? Why is it appealing to so many today, especially the younger generation? Well, it's appealing to people because ultimately, as I make the case for in the book, it is a return to the authority of the self instead of the authority of God and His Word as the inspired and authoritative Word of God. And so for progressive Christians, usually, and I say usually because if you ask a hundred different people what that means to them, they'll give you different answers, but usually what it means is that they're no longer adhering to the historic Christian faith and the Bible as their authority they're moving away from that and feeling like they're evolving in their understanding of truth and that the Bible's not God's Word for all time. So when you do that, you're really just going back to the authority of the self, just like secular culture. It's not all that different in nature than the secularism around. It's really a secularized version of Christianity from from that perspective. So it's very appealing to people because the Bible itself tells us we all want to go our own way. We all want to revert to the authority of ourselves, and we want to gratify the cravings of the flesh. We want to do our own thing. So the Bible is very clear that that's what we want. And that's why I think that we see a lot of people going toward these progressive ideas within Christianity today. It's really just a secularized form of our faith. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And, of course, ultimately, the further people go, the less relevance the Bible has for them, the less they care about it. So it's the starting point for that journey back to self-authority. It was interesting, my friend John Cooper, lead singer of, uh, of Skillet, so the band whose music is playing in, in the show here, uh, he was talking to a Christian woman, and she was talking about deconstructing, and it's fine to ask these questions and, and so on. And, and he, he said, he, he pointed out to her, he said, isn't it interesting that all the conclusions that people are coming to as they deconstruct, agree with what the world is saying and agree with the spirit of the age. Every single one of them, whether it's about marriage, whether it's about family, whether it's about sexuality, whether it's about abortion, whatever, isn't that interesting? And that was a real eye-opener for, for her. And, and what you're saying is you can put these worldviews in the same larger uh, class together because they're going in the same direction. Uh, last question for you. Often when someone comes to us and they finally speak out, often they don't talk about things on the journey, but once they've lost their faith or turned away, and they kind of throw out everything at once. I can't believe in a God like that who wants to kill the Canaanites and who hates gays and and these modern translations. We don't have the original Bible. And how can there only be one way to God? They throw out like 10 different things, all different categories. What's your advice about how to respond Is it that you just pick one area? Do you look for deeper issues as to why they're having questions? How would you approach that, just generally speaking? Yeah, it's a a great question, because this is very common when people walk away from faith or deconstruct, however they want to label it, that you'll see what I call the avalanche of questions. You hear all of these different things, and if if we just go after each one of those, it's like... You know, it's like picking a needle out of a haystack, right? That, well, let me give you an answer to this and this and this. And if you studied apologetics at all, then you're tempted to do that. But usually there's kind of one underlying thing 
that led them to the point of questioning. So it's always really helpful, I think, to just ask people, what started your journey here? What started you thinking about the questions that you're giving me right now? And so that's one thing is to kind of understand the catalyst for it, because a lot of times that will underlie so much. The other thing is just to get some clarity about what it is that they believe now. A lot of people are very quick to walk away from Christianity, but they don't think about what they're walking toward. They think that, well, now I'm just in the point of neutrality. I'm just kind of floating out here. I've, I've thrown away everything that I maybe grew up with, and now I'm so happy and so free. But the reality is that there is a reality to be explained, and how we answer those questions is going to be something that each one of us has to consider. So we should ask people, you know, what is it that you believe now? Do you still believe in God? Do you believe, what do you think that God is, or who do you think that God is? Do you think that he's revealed himself in any way to people? Getting into some of those questions to just understand what is it that they believe. And if they say, you know what, I don't know, because I think this is a common place that people land out, then I would ask them more questions about, is it something that you want to know? Do you want to pursue it and you're just not sure right now? Or do you think that you'll continue to be agnostic? I think all of those kinds of questions help us as Christians to help our friends and our family more, because we're trying to understand a starting point for a conversation, rather than just taking the tip of the iceberg of what they're telling us and trying to pick that off little bit by little bit. Yeah, and it's definitely the, the wise approach. And obviously you're making the personal, I'm taking interest in you in a, as a person as opposed to trying to best you in an argument. But we have to be secure in our own faith. I find that some people just try to tackle the arguments because they don't want to raise the questions because they don't have the answers. And then when they're more secure in their own faith, they're like, hey, throw it all at me. Let's talk mm-hmm. it through. Appreciate what you're doing, and I know the new book is important, but what especially interests me is, is what you've done for parents with kids. So, friends, uh, check out the writings of Natasha Crane. What's your website or the best place people can connect with you? It's NatashaCrane.com, and my last name is spelled C-R-A-I-N. Got it. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. God bless. All right. Well, I appreciate that very much. I just wanted to leave time to remind you about something very important. April 14th. Oh, yes, it's coming. What? We're in March 22nd today. We're talking three weeks, a little over three weeks. April 14th. I've already notified some of the secular media about it. Got some response like, oh, interesting. Yes, not ashamed of Jesus Day. National Not Ashamed of Jesus Day. Take a minute and go to notashamedofjesus.org not ashamed of Jesus at all. Would you all let your pastors know about this? Pastors, leaders, will you let your churches know about this? If you're part of a network denomination, will you help get the word out? You'll get all the info you need on that site. It is our way of, as a body, on a given day, identifying ourselves as believers in the public square. If you're in the home and you don't get out of the home, can you do it in social media? If you're in the workplace, are you required to dress a certain way? If not, can you, can you wear something that identifies you as a follower of Jesus? Can you bring your Bible with you? Can you go out of your way to just tell someone, hey, just want you to know today I'm a follower of Jesus. Is there anything I can do to help? Can I pray for you? And anyway, it's a simple day when we're shouting out to the world. And some of us do this every day anyway, but this is a day to do it again. We're here. We're not ashamed. We love Jesus. We love you. Doing it together is going to be tremendously encouraging because 
You might find out a lot of other kids in your school are believers. You might find out a lot of other people in the workplace are believers. You might find out your manager or your employee, they're believers who didn't even know it because just somehow didn't come up. That's encouraging. Oh, there, there are more of us here than we realize. Also, for those who've been just kind of reluctant to share publicly or you don't want to be involved in controversy, we don't want to be ashamed of the gospel, right? We don't want to be ashamed of Jesus. And, and we are called to let our light shine. So this is a day to just cross that line. We're not saying to stand up on the desk in your business and start preaching to everybody and going around to them when holding the Bible and waving it. And if you don't believe this, you're going to hell. No, just let it be known that you're a follower of Jesus. And now people will know. Maybe they have a question or an issue. They come to you and say, I don't have the answers. Well, great. Just point them to those that, that have more of the answers or say, hey, I'm going to look that up and get an answer for you. And when they want to talk to you about, your, what do you believe about this? Or, hey, you see this in the news today. What do you think? Say, you know, I'm not really sure. Let me think about it. Or, you know, here's what we teach at our church. Just now you're out of the closet in that respect. And as followers of Jesus, we have no business being in the closet. So national, not ashamed of Jesus day. Go to notashamedofjesus.org. Again, you'll be encouraged. Lots of ideas there. Please share it with others. Would you help us get the word out? I believe God dropped this in my heart in writing the book, The Silencing of the Lambs, but this is only going to spread as we spread it together. And especially the first year, it's going to be like throwing a, a rock in the pond and there's some ripples. And then each year we're trusting the rock's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, the ripples more and more. Let's stand together and make it known. We love Jesus. We love you. We're not ashamed. We won't be silenced. We won't be muzzled. In Jesus' name. Another program powered by the Truth Network.